So, is this running? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Let's say a blessing together, as is our custom, for the opportunity to um, uh, gain wisdom and insight. We'll see what we gain today. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav Tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Okay, well, it's nice to... Um, there, are some, there, there are a couple of new participants today, and welcome. Have you been here before? I was here one time, but last year, I think. Well, welcome. What's your name? Mike, Mike Kelly. Oh, hi, Mike. Oh, hi, Mike. Visiting from California. Great, great. And, and Jay brought his, his cousin. cousin, Matthew. So, uh, you know how when you come into the middle of a course, uh, you might have to just kind of ride with it? Cause, and I was thinking, this is the middle of like a 3,000-year course. <laughs> so, but uh, there's all kinds of assumptions and... Um, um, definitions of terms and all kinds of stuff that uh, it takes a long time to uh, kind of work your way into. So just, you know, enjoy the ride. Everyone always gets something out of the conversation because we put so much of ourselves into this particular approach to study. Uh, the portion this week is Bamidbar, which is the beginning of the Book of Numbers, the first portion of the Book of Numbers. We can open to that page. Uh, it's um, page 899. However, we're, today we're really only going to cover a tiny, tiny bit of text because I brought in some commentaries that I want to look at with you. But that's where the text is. The beginning of the book, Bamidbar, the Book of Numbers. As Art Green says in his book here, uh, a preacher's nightmare, the book of num the portion of the book of numbers, because it's truly a census. The first four chapters are pretty much a census. And uh, but the book of numbers, which in Hebrew is known as Bamidbar, in the wilderness, continues the narrative of the sort of the sacred narrative, the <coughs> mythic history of our ancestors, as now they're preparing to leave Mount Sinai, where they've been receiving their, in both their instructions, their teaching, and getting organized from a disorganized group of slaves into a... Um, in an organized community that lives by a covenant of mutual responsibility and care. That's been a, what they've had to do in order to be ready to go to the promised land, is make their way from the, 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 um, a subjugated people with no infrastructure, no, no agreed-upon code of uh, laws, no justice system, no... And now they, and, and most importantly in the spiritual journey of the Torah, without God in their midst, without a sense of the presence of God in their midst. And now they have reached the point where they're ready to journey. And the book of Numbers, as many of you know, 
begins, as it'll say here, in the second year since they've left slavery, so, so it's only been one year, and will cover the next 39, the book of wanderings in the wilderness. And it's a story of great um, struggle. Right? They, may have, they may have gotten organized, but that doesn't mean that they're... Uh, um, uh, that, that they don't have the struggles that every human community faces and that every individual faces on their way to a sense of, um, to the promised land, to the figurative promised land. And so uh, there are some amazing stories about rebellion and leadership and uh, fear and trust. And uh, it's, quite, it's, it's quite a book, actually. Bamidbar is the name of the whole book in the wilderness. Uh, again, for those not familiar with this, the way that the Jewish, the traditional Jewish way to name a book or a section of a book is by the first marked significant word in the book. So it doesn't have a title per se. The, the Greek called it Numbers, the book of Numbers. Uh, just like they, because it is, it starts with all these numbers, all this counting. But the Hebrew name, the first significant word, Vayedaber Adonai El Moshe, God spoke to Moses, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. And that becomes a very appropriate title for the entire book, as well as this week's portion. Carol? Don't forget to project everybody. I'm thinking about all this in a, in a somewhat different context because I was I was at my um, prison yesterday where I do volunteer work, and there was a lot of talk yesterday about what they call the box, which is solitary confinement, and of about 15 people in the room. Everyone had at some point or another been spent time in the box. And half of the people in the room had done it before they were 18. And these are men who are working harder than anybody I have ever known to, to be human beings in the world. And just as you were talking, I was thinking, slaves don't have to make decisions. Slaves are told what to do, and they have no way of understanding how to behave so that it's helpful to them. Someone described yesterday, it took him, it took him like 15 years to understand that he had anything to do with his being put in the box. That, he, that his behavior had anything to do with, with the decision to, to, to put him away. It's like, really? And because there was no, in his world, there was no teaching that. There was no, um, it was not a part of, of the structure that he grew up in. Um, and so as, I, as I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about all these rebellions and, and th that are coming up and, and how, we, how we tend to 
be so hard on on the, the children of Israel, the children of Israel, because we don't like the way they behave, and why can't they do? Why can't they be good kids? Um, there's no preparation. This is like this is just virgin territory, and just putting, thinking about putting myself in that mindset as I go into the story is very exciting. Very good. Very good. The word, what, what, say, the, the, the gentleman you were just talking about, he never learned about personal accountability. And the word count, accountability to count the book of numbers um, is all very, very relevant here. Again, I want to remind folks that um, we read the Torah both as an ancient, as I say, mythic history and as a story of spiritual journey. Right? The Torah is a story of spiritual journey, of, our, of, of, of every individual's journey from uh, towards accountability, towards holiness, towards being organized in a way where you serve the ultimate rather than uh, serve the Pharaoh. Uh, all of that is the, sto- the story of this journey. It takes a long time. There's an incredible amount of backsliding because that's the human situation. Right? And yet, if we consider ourselves on the journey, we hold a goal in mind, which we call the promised land, uh, while we work on ourselves. And uh, you know, that's, that's, how I, that's how I view this, is in terms of a spiritual life journey. Uh, ways that that... So the, the, even though the Torah, in its typical way, doesn't, is not explicit about any of this, the oral tradition, the thousands of years of commentary on it, do make those connections and pull it out. So, for example, uh, I've noticed many times, I was, uh, as I was preparing, I was reading Gail's introduction as I, to the Book of Numbers. Uh, one thing that we both have learned and that we've talked about is that the book of, ironically, the book of Exodus, its Hebrew name is the book of Shemot, which means names. And uh, the... Israelites as slaves are actually nameless. They don't have names. You could say the process of, of these books is the book of names, then the book God called to us, and now the book of numbers, not random digits, but it says um, in verse 2, Se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Raise up the heads of every member of the community of Israel. And Rashi says that God wanted to count every one of them because God remembers. And again, again, if you're not familiar with my teaching style, I'm not meeting this literally. Uh, it's about do we count or not? Do we matter or not? Do we have personal accountability, responsibility or not? Uh, and so in the book of Shmot in the book of names, when it begins, and I think this is worth looking at. So if you feel like following me back here, you could look at uh, page 346. the very beginning of Exodus, if you care to look. 
It begins, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And it names the 12 sons and says there were 70 people in Jacob's, of Jacob's uh, uh, issue. And then it says in verse 6, Joseph died and they all died in that generation. Uvnei Yisrael paru v'yishretzu v'yirbu v'yatzmu v'imod ma'od v'timalea ha'aratzotam. The Israelites were fertile and yishretzu. Sheretz is like, um, uh, it means, the translation is prolific, but sheretz is, they, uh, is how God describes the swarming creatures who crawl over the earth on their bellies in Genesis. So Yishutsu means to, to team, T-E-E-M, you know, to kind of, it's a teeming mass, fertile, prolific, teeming mass. And you, the language of that is the language of um, nameless creatures. That sets the tone for Pharaoh and how they're going to be treated as nameless uh, nameless creatures. The, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so they may increase no more. Um, that's all I want to point out in that. Uh, this is a, that is the swarming mass, the people who never got to learn how to be accountable, right? The people who were under... Uh, it would never... The people who were... I'm thinking about the prisoners you're talking about. Uh, never even had the opportunity to know what it meant to be treated in such a way that they would think that they, that they were accountable for their actions in the world and that their actions made a difference. And that there was anything to do when feeling threatened except to strike back. Mm-hmm. Right, that there's any, there's any higher order, higher purpose... Uh, this mass, this formless mass, has to become individuated. Each one of them has to count. Now, in, uh, in, in the Torah, we know this. In this case, we're talking about a fighting force, and it's going to be all the males of fighting age. The co- later commentators ignore this completely and say, no, 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 this is about everybody. And we're in that camp, right? If we want to, we can do a different uh, take on this about the fighting force that's being, being created here in order to march forward to the promised land. And that reading is right here. But I don't want to follow that reading today. I want us to, uh, to take the leap um, Beyond, uh, beyond it being a, a, a male fighting force here and beyond the, ma- the male-centric nature of the Torah and do what not just we want to do but what was self-evident to lots of commentators prior to that which is to treat it as everybody. Um, uh, so you can see in the graphic on page 898 uh, you know, if you want to turn back, uh, that this is a description of the way the camp is going to be organized now. 
and everyone has their marching orders, right? So, um, uh, but it's organized around the tabernacle, around the dwelling place for God, and in the center of that is the Ten Commandments. So the whole camp and the entire description is organized around how we're going to go th- travel through the wilderness together with the Ten Commandments, the covenant. Do not murder. <coughs> do not commit adultery. Do not be a false witness. Honor your mother and father. Keep the Shabbat. Acknowledge the oneness of all. Do not worship false idols. As their central covenantal constitution around which they're going to organize their journey. Right? That's, that is the transformation from a swarming mass into this effort to create the possibility of, of a, a holy society where people aren't treating each other like uh, um, 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 crawling bugs to be crushed underfoot. So, um, and on the journey, uh, there, we're terrible at it, right? We're terrible at it because that's a big part of our nature. The way Judaism understands human nature is that our, we, have, we have a conflictual nature. Part of us is simply out for ourselves, and part of us senses and wants to aspire to the possibility that we have of what it means to be a, a of what it means to be a, a fulfilled, righteous person and community, and it's a const. It's, that's for Judaism. That's the human story, right? Uh, how how do we manifest that in the face of our conflictual nature? So what I did today was I decided to look at some Hasidic source. Oh, I remember, there's something else I want to tell you about. The other thing, now that that context is established, is that in uh, three days, we arrive at the festival of Shavuot, the festival where we celebrate the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And it, as it happens, Whatever geniuses set up this, the way the Jewish calendar works, and I mean that actually positively, this portion always falls on the Shabbat before Shavuot. So you can't ignore it. They, there's something that the framers of Jewish sacred time, and it, none of it's accidental, I don't know how they did it, uh, but they line things up in ways so that we need to be thinking about Mount Sinai and standing at Mount Sinai when we read this portion in the wilderness. And I think, yeah. uh, so we get to make the connections, but I just want you to know that this portion always falls on the Shabbat before Shavuot. Does it have anything to do with alternating those last week's two uh, parshiots in one? Uh, yes, it's uh, sometimes the two parshiot in the previous week are separated, and sometimes they're combined, so that this always takes place. That's right. Um, yes, Gail? You said something I don't think I've remembered or realized. I just want to clarify for myself. Sure. So when they first leave Egypt, the three months till they get to Sinai, 
Right. They have. They hear God's voice. They don't even hear God's voice. They get manna coming down. Yeah. Moses is the intermediary, but they don't have any clear image or, or any any conduit, sort of, for connection to God from their end. So there's an arbitrary quality to it, right? That's right. I never thought of it that way. The plagues are happening. The yeah, sea is right, splitting. Exactly, right. And, and they're okay. Like, right, and they're swarming. I mean, they have no sense of. Of anything larger or connection or causation or their responsibility, it's all been lost, and there's just one more um, despotic potentially voice, or not even voice, but stuff that happens, right? And Moses tells them it's this force, it's it's this God, right? And then they get to Sinai, and they actually hear the voice at Sinai, and they say it's too much for us, right? And then they spend a year building this conduit, both externally, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the physical Mishkan, and as we understand it, internally, so that there is um, a capacity to sort of hear the word directly, to get the directions, to get for themselves. And, and then we spend 40 years in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so, but that, so the pillar of flame and the cloud do not appear in the text until after we've built the sanctuary? No, no, no. They appear at, at the Red Sea. That's what I was trying to... That's yeah. what I wasn't sure. So do we actually see a pillar for the next three... as we're traveling for the... Uh, yes, yes. Okay, that's, what I, that's what I thought you said, maybe not. Okay, but it's still arbitrary. We don't it's arbitrary until they get to Mount Sinai right. and it says... Everyone heard right. the voice right. Right. Okay. at Mount Sinai and heard it and internalized it. And then they were terrified and said, this is too much. Right. Okay. Moses, you speak to us. And they build this container right. so that they can, can try to live in the, in, the, in the blinding light of freedom, you could say. Right. Okay. It's oh. very beautifully set up. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> Pauline? I'm just <clears throat> taken with the fact of that before this, the names seem to be absent so long. There are names at the beginning of the Torah. We know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know some. And then it's a swarming mass. Right. And now suddenly this individuality of each person becoming responsible to listen for the voice right. and to take it in, right. coupled with, I'm just, I, just, I just see the connection also, the individual spiritual enlightenment coming down and an understanding because of this organization and this ethical, moral imperative that's been built in the community and I think that's so what's magnificent about Judaism, the individual responsibility for, for a spiritual growth and the necessity of being part of a morally imperative community. Nicely put. Thank you. So, uh, so Shavuot, the festival of where we imagine ourselves receiving the Torah again, 
and by imagining it can happen, right? Because hearing God's voice in many ways is an act of imagination. Uh, and I don't mean that in it. It's, I think you know what I mean. We have to have an openness to interpreting our experiences uh, in a really imaginative and creative way. So Shavuot is in the background here, and it's coming around in, uh, uh, on Saturday night. So what I did today was I looked at some Hasidic interpretations of these first two verses, because they are also interpreting it in the light of what, I'm, what we're talking about, that somehow something's happening in this census that's more than just uh, uh, one, two, three, four <coughs> counting. There's, some, there's a different kind of accounting that's going on here. And so let me, let's, let's use these texts as our jumping off point today. And I will, uh, um, here, if you take one and pass it along, Bob, there's enough for everybody. I'll do the back row. Passing notes in class, oh, Martha. Sorry. I thought I had an opportunity. Unless you read it to everybody. <laughs> How I'd love Diane's <laughs> Okay. This comes. This. This comes from. If you look on the first one, it says Bamidbar uh, Noam Elimelech. So turn yours over uh, so that you're, you see the heading on top. comes from this new book called Speaking Torah, Spiritual Teachings from Around the Magid's Table. I've shared it with you before, where Art Green, my teacher, and some of his, um, some of his students and colleagues translated and selected Hasidic teachings on the weekly Torah portion. So this first one is from the collection called Noam Elimelech. And Noam Elimelech, this is Elimelech of Lezhensk, uh, who's um, a famous Hasidic master. Uh, and uh, he was the brother of Zushya. Uh, Zushya's famous uh, too for... Like Moses, be like yeah, yeah, when he's crying and, and they're saying, why are you crying? You, uh, well, oh, now I'm not going to remember the story. He's saying, when I die, oh yeah, before his death, Reb Zoshi said, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not like Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zosha? Mm-hmm. Right? He's, that's the most famous Zosha quote. Not why you're not Moses, why are you not Zosha? Come on, be yourself. That was Zosha. Uh, Reb Elimelechin, there are lots of stories about them. Here's a typical night story about Elimelechin Zosha. One night while on their wanderings, Rabbi Elimelech and his brother Zosha were stranded in a village inn where a wedding was in progress. 
The drunken peasant, seeing the two bearded brothers hiding behind the stove, grabbed Rabzusha and made him perform a dance while goading him and poking and jabbing him from all sides. And round and round, poor Zusha danced to the uproarious laughter of the rowdies. Between dances, Rabbi Elimelech whispered, Why do they always pick on you? It's God's will, Rabzusha sighed. You know what? Let's change places, Rabbi Elimelech suggested. They can't tell us apart. The next time they'll grab me and you'll get some rest. So Rabzusha took his brother's place behind the stove. Just then, one of the peasants roared, This time, let's get the one behind the stove. <laughs> The other one's danced enough already. <laughs> when it was all over, Abilsia said to his brother, look, when something is God's will, it's going to come to pass no matter what you do. <laughs> I like that story. Yeah. Um, here's another typical Rabbi Elimelech of Luzhen's story. Rabbi Elimelech once set out for home from a city he had visited, and all the Hasidim accompanied him for a long stretch of the way. And when his carriage drove through to the gate, he got out, told the coachman to drive on, and walked behind the carriage in the midst of the throng. The astonished Hasidim asked him why he had done this, and he answered, When I saw the great devotion with which you were performing the good work of accompanying me, I could not bear to be excluded from it. <laughs> Think about that story. The other version of that story that I know is he said, when I saw how you were worshipping this coach, this, this carriage, I just had to get out and join you. <laughs> it, you know, he, he, you get the story, I hope. Uh, um, real people, by the way? Yes, real people. But the stories, yeah, I am. we don't know about the story. Rabbi Eliyamelech said, when he said the Kiddush for Shabbat, to welcome Shabbat, he occasionally took out his watch and looked at it. Why? Because at that moment, his soul threatened to dissolve in bliss. And so he looked at his watch in order to steady himself in time and in the world. I love that story. What's he doing looking at his watch? It's Shabbos. He doesn't want to dissolve. And, uh, so these are good. Uh, Rebelli Melech once said, I am certain to have a share in the coming world because... When I stand in the court of justice above and they ask me, have you studied all you should? I shall answer, no. Then they'll ask, have you prayed all you should? I'll say, no. And they'll then ask me, have you done all the good you could? And this time I'll say, no. And then they will pronounce their verdict. You told the truth. <laughs> For the sake of truth, you deserve a share in the coming world. Um, I love these stories. I love these stories. I had to read you some Eli Melech of Legend's stories. He was a holy man. Okay. He had, and so here's what he says in his teachings about the first two verses, the first verse of the book of Numbers. yud heh vav spoke to Moses b'midbar Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai, b'ohel mo'ed in the tent of meeting, Be'echad lachodesh, on the first day of the month, of the second month, in the second year, since Tzaytam me'eretz Mitzrayim, since they had left the land of Egypt. And so, he's going to take this apart like this. 
With this sentence, the Torah is teaching correct conduct. Ech she'adam yitnaheg atzmo. How one should be in the world. How one should comport oneself in the world. Not good manners. That's not what he's talking about. The words midbar sinai are a reminder that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai in order to teach you to be extremely humble and self-effacing. Why? Because he quotes a well-known Midrash. And his people listening all know this story. What's the story? They, the question the rabbis raise is, why did God give the Torah on Mount Sinai? There's a thousand mountains. What's, what's with Mount Sinai? And so the, there are many Midrashim about that. The most famous Midrash is that Mount Sinai was the lowliest mountain not the highest mountain. And so, remember that God rejected all the high mountains and chose Mount Sinai, which was the lowest of them all. That's lovely. So he starts with that. The reason it says Sinai is to remind us the story about Mount Sinai being a lowly mountain. Where does that lowly mountain come from? It comes from the... They, that's, they don't make that story out of nothing. They have to have some fun with Torah to do it. Well, the word for the burning bush, which is the same spot where first Moses hears God's voice, and then God's, the voice says, bring the children of Israel back to this place so that I might you know, uh, communicate with them. Um, it, the word for bush is sneh. Hasneh, the bush. And hasneh, and Sinai, <clears throat> mm -hmm. it's the only place in Torah where the word snet is used to describe a bush. There's lots of other words for shrubbery and bushes. When Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac and there's a ram, with its horns caught in the bushes. It's not the word sneh, it's a different word. It's a sichim, I think. They don't use the word jeb ever? Jeb bush? <laughs> Stu, I'm glad you're feeling better. <laughs> so how do we know it means bush if it's not used anywhere else for bush? How do we know it means bush? That is called, in fancy biblical study talk, Hapax legomenon. There, I said it. It's like something I remember. It means when a word only occurs once in the Bible and you have nothing to compare it to. It's, uh, we don't know exactly. What is this? Yeah, we don't know exactly. And we talked about that um, um, last week in reference to, no, two weeks, two weeks ago in reference to the, um, the uh, where Azazel is, where the goat is supposed to go. We don't know what, uh, so there's words like this that only occur once in the Torah. So yes, the tradition says it's a burning bush. Well, what's the other word? This the same place where, where Moses is said to bring the people back to the same is place? Is the place of the snap. Of the snap, but that's the only time that's word used. As far as I know, yeah. Somebody does it say it's a burning snap? Snap bo'er, burning snap. Mm -hmm. So, there has to be, well, there doesn't have to be, one, a, a reasonable guess is that that word, which maybe it does, probably means bush, I don't know, actually, um, uh, was used because of its relationship to the Mount Sinai. 
right? Hasna and Sinai are, are like almost the same. So, and the rabbis love talking about how God uh, revealed the, the, the mystery to Moses out of a lowly bush. Because, and then you get to make up lots of good reasons, right? Because, and the two most uh, common reasons that our tradition cites are to show that God's present everywhere, not just in the, uh, not just in the towering mountain tops, not just in the exalted How would you place. Like to change it, right? How would you want to change it? <laughs> <laughs> well, from Sinai, I would say like the foothill or the bottom of the mountain or the side of the mountain or something. You can write that story, Diane. Yeah. We know you can write that story. And I'll do a little research to see if Sneh, how, how, how come that is understood to be a bush. Maybe it does appear somewhere else. But it doesn't appear anywhere else in the five books of Moses. I know that. Except as referring, referencing that particular spot. So one tradition is that to show that uh, God is, the divine energy is everywhere, not just in the exalted places, but also in the humble and low places. And this is such an important teaching. Remember, this is a teaching about how God cares about the disenfranchised, the slaves, the widow, the orphan. That theme is consistent through the Torah. So it's not a leap to understand that God makes God's presence evident not just in the palace or in the temple. Yes? Isn't there an irony in this if the word is used for bush only once, and God is everywhere, but it's also particular. If, if, if they tell the story of, anyway, you see my point? Or, I, no, 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 you have to say another sentence. I need a little more. Well, if God appears to show that he's everywhere and humble, low mountain and sneh, but sneh doesn't re repeat. It, it's a unique use of time and place. So uh -huh. isn't that ironic that you're telling, the teaching is about he, Yes, that's right. That is everywhere, and yet it's so specific in this occurrence. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. It seems to me that ironic is a good word. I would say paradoxical, okay. and that is the nature of spiritual uh, awareness. Yeah. Is how come you know if God is holy, 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 every the whole world is filled with divine glory? What's it mean then to encounter that energy in a specific place or person? Uh, as unique, the uniqueness of 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 this encounter, of this encounter. and yet it's universal. It's universal. Yeah. And the way the rabbis teach that most famously, and this will actually come up a little later in our, our texts, is when they're describing in Mishnah Sanhedrin about how you have to uh, exhort witnesses in a capital case. Some of you are familiar with this. I've talked about it. Uh, many times, and you have to say to them, remember, um, uh, God is, the creator is amazing, because when Caesar makes a coin for, the, for Caesar's realm, with Caesar's image, every coin is alike. But when God coins the creatures of God's realm, everyone in God's image 
every human being, everyone is unique. And I love that teaching. So yes, yes. So I would say paradoxical even more than ironic in a, in a yes, certain yes, way. Yes. But I think that's reoccurring. It's, yeah, it's very lovely, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Ellen, did you want to share something? Yes, in the particular. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's very particular and therefore becomes universal. This is, the, this is one of the things about great stories. Great stories are, are, have to be specific. That's what makes them a great story. And yet, out of that story, we, our mind expands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice and loud, Stu. Yeah. This reminds me of a Hasidic story. And I don't know if it was a Baal Shem Tom would go into a specific place in the forest and say these specific words to God. That's right. And then after a while, they couldn't find the specific place, but they remembered the words, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about Mount Sinai, there's a whole bunch of them. No one knows where Mount Sinai is. And one good thing about that is we don't worship this mountain. And it is universal. And the snap, mm -hmm. no more. That is the That becomes the teaching... Did you want to say something, Bob? Yeah. Okay, go um, ahead. After the Six-Day War, when Israel conquered, among other places, the Sinai Peninsula, it was possible to climb up yeah. what was identified as Mount Sinai. Jabal Musa, Moses' mountain. I was there. And Me too. you go there the day before and you sleep at the monastery called Santa Catarina. From the fourth century. Mm -hmm. yes. And you see the, the, the skulls of all the monks that had died. And they also have a place, they point you to a bush. That's right. And they say, that's the burning bush. That's right. That's the one. I, I remember that. I remember that. And then when I got to the top for sunrise, yep. they had carved like, Hundreds of steps had been carved into this granite mountain. There's nothing that grows on it. And got up there for sunrise. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. And there was graffiti. <laughs> in the Did you ever go up to North Lake and, and look at the former site of the mountain house? And there's people have carved in beautiful yeah. letters, 1843, it's and their name. Enough. It's not, it's not jumped. It's interesting. It, well, that was the kind of graffiti that was on top of Mount Sinai. Beautiful carved. I was here. But anyway, that's right. The burning bush is one of the, um, uh, um, what's the word? The icons? I don't know if that's the right word. The, the, the things that they, rev that they reverence there. Yeah. And they pointed out to you. That's right. That's right. But that doesn't make it the true place. Rights do. <laughs> but oh. don't, tell, don't tell the monks that. No, it, it's, okay. Right. it's okay. It's okay. Hold on, let me just share a couple other things. So I've, I've made the connection with the, the snare and the lowliness and where they come up with that idea. But they also use that teaching about the bush, the, this, this, this ordinary shrub in the in the wilderness, you know, you can picture them, you can picture the uh, kind of the tumbleweeds, the shrubs uh, in this wilderness, uh, because it was required of Moses to be paying careful enough attention to the landscape around him 
in order to notice the presence of God, right, in the lowly bush. So all of it is about, this, about spiritual awareness, about how Moses could have gone right by and not noticed it, about how God wants us to remember, as it were, that, that the divine presence is in here is in everything and everybody. All of that is part of the teaching of Sinai. Um, Pauline, you wanted to add something. I, I was going to just say, in relation to what you just said, I was thinking, I never realized before, amazing to me, is that, that the word Bamidbar, I think, is the same Shoresh as Deber, to speak. So what happens when God speaks in the desert mm-hmm. on a spiritual basis? And I was thinking about that Moses was somehow primed, for whatever the reason was, was somehow primed to pay attention when that bush wasn't burning. But look what had to happen in these pages for these swarms of individuals to be primed to hear the raining of God's words in the desert and to absorb it. And then I think it comes right before Shavuot. And what do we have to do spiritually to be ready to hear in our desert of whatever desert we happen to be in? Thank you. Thank you. So speaking about thank you. (sighs) (laughs) Speaking about the word midbar, which means wilderness. The other teaching that um, is very important in the rabbinic tradition is that the Torah was given at this place in the wilderness because it didn't belong to anyone. Mm. This was crucial. God's word does not belong to anyone. It's given in the place that is ownerless, where we don't assert our ownership over it. That's So another teaching that they give about why the Torah was given there in the wilderness is specifically so that it wasn't given when we got to the Promised Land, where that's our holding, that's our place. It was given where, where, there, where we had no ownership over it. Because on a spiritual journey, you can't, if you assert ownership over that, that awareness, you've already, the instant you do that, the experience is over. Right? The, inst- the, 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 the instant we say, now I've got it, the experience is over. And um, to be a receptacle, a vessel for the divine voice flowing through us, we have to both accept, receive it and let it go constantly and make ourselves servants of your will. That's where that religious language comes from. To be servants of the divine will is to be open to that and respond to it in an ongoing way where we don't claim ownership of it. This is an ongoing, uh, I mean, most of the time we're busy owning our environment, right? That's, that's how we function in the world. I'm not, you know, it's only the, it's the very, very unusual person, you know, who, uh, 
who's able to hold themselves that lightly. You, you know. Yes, Carol. Um, I once heard the uh, director Andre Gregory talk about his his grandmother, the leader's grandmother, who whose language was filled with malapropisms, her her English, and she would refer to the bewilderness. <laughs> the bewilderness. <laughs> to be bewildered is to lose your bearings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful story. Um, and will the beast. <laughs> Gail. Yeah, I, and I was just I was thinking that it's a teaching again and again, and in reality, that often we are most open to hearing that voice when our life has just crumbled around us. And we're in the wilderness, you know. That's right. That's right. Why, especially in my experience, why after someone has died, a beloved has died, and I'm with people, why are they open? In, they're, they're broken open, in a way. Uh, and uh, that certainly was true for me, I remember, after my dad died, um, for letting life speak to me in a way I hadn't heard before. Yeah, ripped apart. All the ways that, that's right, that's right. That, and again, one of the paradoxes of human experience. So uh, Elizabeth Lesser, who some of us know, wrote a book she called Broken Open about people's spiritual crises and, what, and how they grew from them. Uh, that, the, that there is no, that crises are part of, <coughs> what do you call it when, um, uh, what's, well, anyway, someone will think of it, that, that we require those moments in order to grow. Yeah. We, we, it has to happen. That's the, it's not a straight line. Yeah. So, so in the story, the Israelites have been taken from enslavement where they are nothing and flung out into this desert, right? So they're broken. I mean, they're going to break open. Right. Because they're, they're stuck in the wilderness whether they like it or not. You know, right? Yeah, and unprepared. Unprepared. So they break open. And here guys was. That's right. Nicely put. The the so the so um there was one more thought about wilderness. We'll get to it in a little while. Well, I'll tell it I'll, I'll say it now. You've heard me say this before. But it bears repeating. So wilderness has a wonderful English connotation. Midbar which the tradition understands as the ownerless place, the trackless place, the place that hasn't been domesticated. That's what Midbar is in the Torah. And um, Hefker, you know, not belonging to anyone, uh, which is the beautiful thing about the idea of the Wilderness Act in this country, that there are parts of this country that belong to all of us and none of us, and we go there and pack out what we take in, right? because our souls need it. Uh, it's one of the geniuses of, I guess, when was that? Was that Teddy Roosevelt or later? Teddy yeah. Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, in Hebrew, midbar means, comes from the root lidaber, which means to speak, which is very interesting and odd. Uh, midbar, as I've described before, is in the Hebrew construction when you put the mem before a verb, it means the place of. So I'll say again, like, mitbach is a kitchen. Tabach is to cook. 
right? Miklachat is a, is a shower. Lekaleach is to wash. You know, that's the way the Hebrew language works. So Midbar and Mishkan is the place where the Lishachin, to dwell. Mikdash is the place where Kodesh is, where, where holiness happens, right? So, Midbar is the place of speech. I'm eternally fascinated with this. I, but, on the other hand, I've, I've talked about this before, it is my experience that when I've been on wilderness treks, the first two or three days, I, my brain is talking constantly. And then, after a few days, and that's why I long for these experiences, I seem to have run out of words. I don't know what's happened. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I hear God speak. Right? I hear the universe, I hear the world speak to me. Not necessarily in words, but because Judaism is such a word-centered, uh, Hebrew is such a word-centered tradition, then we talk about it as speech. And the Midbar is the place to hear God's voice. That's, that's how I understand it. So the Midbar Sinai, which is the, the first significant words of this portion, are the wilderness, or the place where we hear God speak, of Sinai, the, um, the, 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 the humble place, the place where we have to be paying attention, not to hierarchy, but to everything. And uh, that's where it happens. So Noam Elimelech is sharing with us that, and then he adds another layer to how to, how to do this. And he takes the next phrase, Be'ohel Mo'ed, in the tent of meeting, which is an incredibly evocative term in and of itself. Uh, but, he, but he likes to do a word play and say, take care that this submissiveness, this humbleness, not lead you into depression. Mm. He's an interesting teacher. So he's not talking about the humility that says, I'm crap. It's the humility that says, I'm no more special than anybody else or anything else. That's a different kind of humility because that, you're still, you still matter. But it's a very fine and difficult line to tread of uh, where humility can um, turn into that strange self-centeredness that shuts you off from, from life. So he says... For that is a great obstacle to God's service. The Torah teaches that you should always be joyful. This is pure Hasidism, right? The Shekhinah is not present amid sadness. That doesn't mean that the Shekhinah is punishing you and saying, you're sad, I'm leaving. Right, right. It's not the punishing parent. That's not what's going on here. You know, it's not about conditional. It's that when you're in a state of depression and sadness, you don't experience the Shekhinah embracing you. That's ironically the hardest time when you need it the most. It's the hardest time to feel, feel that enfolding presence. But joy is not just happiness. No. That's really important here. Because if, if I Love think it. I... I'm sorry, I'm like something got caught. Um, joy is not just happiness. So, so if I... If I... 
if I allow for joy to be a full expression of whatever I am experiencing, then I have access to the Shekhinah. If, if, I, if, if, if I don't want to feel, if I shut down on my feelings, I don't. That's what, that's what that means to me. Beautiful. You know, I have to think about the Dalai Lama when I've seen him as humble and joyful. You know, he's a good, he, I think he's a pretty darn good example of that. Personified as joyful. But joyful in terms of being alive. Yeah. Taking it Wherever and it nice and loud, Stu. No matter how bad things are, you can always find something to be joyful. If it's a loved one who died, there's that joyful that you had that experience for. And there's always something that you can get to enjoy. And, I, and Reb Nachman of Bratislav, he said, every day you should find joy in life. It's a wonderful stuff. It's true. And we're not talking about don't be sad. I would say a better word might be melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, with, hmm? Or depressed. Depressed, the yes. Of feeling rather than yes, the Hebrew word for depressed... Uh, or dikaon. Dikaon means up, literally depressed. Depressed is a good English word. Atsuk means sad. Yeah. Um, the words in tent of meeting, ohel moed, imply that you should enter the tent of joy. For the word for meeting, moed, is also the word for festival in Hebrew. Moadim lesimcha, festivals of joy. So, okay, humility, but not depression. Entering the tent of and, joy. And when you enter the tent, you see other people. So uh, I just had an image of, of us on Rosh Hashanah, and we haven't seen each other in weeks and weeks or months and months sometimes. And whatever is going on in our individual lives, I have always experienced this amazing, wow, you're still here and I'm still here. So it doesn't, it's not about the personal feeling of, of the moment. It's as I enter the tent of meeting and I meet. That's the tent of meeting is a beautiful yeah. word. Let's all enter the tent of meeting. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And then, I mean, and certainly our high holiday tent is that tent of meeting. Mm-hmm. But so is our time here today. Yeah. And anyway, yeah. that's beautiful. I, I also think about the idea of meaning, that tent of meaning, I think about panim la panim, mm-hmm. face, face to face. face, and what happens when a person's face has some countenance of even just, I'm glad to be meeting you at this moment in time, and what that does in terms of a reflection of some true inner joy. It's an amazing thing, just that moment. Countenance. Your countenance. i got to look up the root of that word and what it has to do with it. It's beautiful. Uh, another word play in this beautiful teaching from Noam Elimelech. It then says, in the wilderness of Sidai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month. Month in Hebrew is Chodesh. What does Chadash mean? New. New. Chadesh. Renew. When we celebrate the new moon, it's the moon's renewal. And so he's going to play with that. Thank you. Figs. Um, Should you say, 
on the second day of the second month, renewal. And now he's talking to his Hasidim. Should you say, how can I rejoice when I have sinned so extensively? The Torah teaches that you should nevertheless engage in repentance with joy. Encourage yourself by saying, I am reborn this very day and I will never return to my foolishness. <laughs> Renewal, chidush, is about becoming a new person. And this is alluded to in the words, Be'echad Lachodesh, on the first of the month, in the second month, Be'chodesh Hasheni, because this is the second new start, he says. The first was when you were born, and the second is when you repent and are forgiven. Repent and forgiven, buzzwords again for many of us, but for his Hasidim, totally understood. It's the moment when you realize, oh, I got off track, and you say, oh, I'm starting over, right? Forgive yourself. I love this little manual of teaching he's pulling out of this first sentence. Humility, but not depression. The tent of meeting. Um, but if you're still getting down on yourself and saying, I can't meet God here, I can't, then just remember, it's chadash. This moment is a moment of renewal. The moon renews, we renew. You can always, the, moon, the new moon is always going to come. Your cycle of waxing and waning is also always going to happen. And you have to embrace it and start afresh. I like that. Or Chadash al Tzion to let a new light shine upon us. And then he does one more with the last phrase of the verse. This is classic Torah, Torah uh, dancing, Torah talking, which is you take a verse and you take it apart and you give it the meaning you want it to have. But it's not a meaning that's completely divorced in any way from the verse, which is about God speaking in the wilderness. It's not it's not arbitrary. It's incredibly creative. And uh, the second year since they left Egypt, B'Shanah HaShenit L'Tzetam Me'eretz Mitzrayim refers to the same thing. And now for him, Egypt is a figurative place. Right? It's a place where we don't <clears throat> know who we are, where we're lost, where we're... For the Blessed Holy One took us out of Egypt, meaning the terrible shells, that's Hasidic, that's Kabbalistic talk, haklipot hagdolot, the, uh, the, the husks, the coverings, a husk, klip, massive, massive. Uh, dense, that's Kabbalah, that the sparks of divinity are in this world, but they're hidden under husks and shells. And, and we have to reveal that light. Uh, how? That gets back to me, to Moses. Was that a burning bush? Or was Moses able to see the light inside the corporeal? Right? Is that, that, that may be it, friends. You know, that may, you know, Moses is out there and sees that light hit, that most of the time is hidden from view. Mm -hmm. <coughs> if it were more modern times, we'd have 
Moses with a little light bulb cartoon over his head. <laughs> with a light bulb going on? Yeah, you know how they do it in cartoons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it makes me think of the spring flowers. And, no. and uh, um, uh, an old friend of mine wrote a letter uh, that I got recently from Philadelphia, how he has a grandson now, who um, insisted on their most recent walk that they smell every flower. <laughs> and Chuck, the guy writing the letter, he was like, um, he, yes, that's what children can offer us. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Um, yes, Polly. Moses, oh, if you think about it, perhaps he also was really not all that different from all of us in that he came through some horrible, terrible, traumatic times. From the time he almost drowned in the river, pulled away from his mother, sent back, pulled away again, killed somebody, everybody's after him, he's going to die. Um, Runs away. Go escape into the desert, nobody will see me. Leaves everything. So... You're, you're left out there. So the fact that he, there was some translucency for him to hear or see whatever <clears throat> it was that he did is no different than it took this whole children of Israel this same kind of journey of absolute terror. And until they realized they were in terror and started screaming, they didn't have a chance. So I think about that, right? What we talked about when people are so far down, a great tragedy happens, and the ones who do survive, then where are we? <laughs> yes, we can tell the story of Moses in many different ways. And that way, look at this guy. And, and he's broken open. And, the, and then there's another way of telling it that, that Jethro had nurtured him and helped him start to be able to pay attention in a different way. Both true. And we often know that people that survive traumatic times, if there is some mentor, some nurturing person, sometimes only for moments Mm -hmm. in their life, the difference it makes. So it's a human story. What do you see in the prison, Carol, among these lifers? Well, the, the... this guy who, who said that, that he uh, had, not, had not known that he had any power over, over, his, over his, what happened to him. Or over um, his own behavior. Also said, it, he, he probably heard it many times before, but we couldn't hear it. But there was, what, there was a teacher in a course that he was resisting taking, and but there was a teacher who said something, and he got it. It was the right teacher at the right at the moment. Right time. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment when he started practicing different behavior. The Torah, in its broadest sense, meaning the wisdom, the teaching that we need, that's the Hebrew meaning of Torah, is always present. And then, at some point, God willing, we're ready to hear it, and the right moment comes when we hear it from the right person. Um, Is that called revelation? We can call it revelation. 
And the reason I like calling it revelation, both in Hebrew and English, they mean the same thing, is it means to reveal, which means to uncover something that was already there. Something that's been waiting under a husk to be uncovered and revealed. Yes. Uh, and all that comes, the responsibility that comes with that revelation. David White has a great poem about that. Revelation must be terrible with no time left to say goodbye. Mm. You're leaving everything you, ha- you knew about mm. behind. Wow. Revelation great. must be terrible with no time, with left, no to time left to say goodbye. That's so beautiful. So there they are at Sinai, yeah. willy-nilly. They don't have this. Your life has changed forever. Yep. Wow. And all that comes with that responsibility. Right. Because uh, accountability means you have to be accountable. And you're not necessarily ready to be. So there's wow. backsliding like and, right. and then, and then you remember Or as you say, God doesn't so, you. so that's why we say either ready or not, <laughs> here it comes, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Oh, well, I, I hope so. But ready or not, here I come, or I'm as ready as I'll ever be, and then you do what you do. You do your best. But that was more than than they could handle or we yeah. can handle. But it's there now. Right. That's the difference. The learning is there now to be re-revealed over and over and over. And we call Moses in the Jewish tradition Moses Moshe Rabbeinu, which means Moses our teacher. In the Jewish tradition, Moses is our teacher. And so that's why, because Moses brings us the Torah, gives us the Torah, reveals to us the burning bush, the light, the hidden light under the, under the bushel. And this is our way of talking about it as Jews. This is our way of talking about that, that human process. And I was thinking that when God speaks and gives the Torah in so many languages, I used to think the simple story was so that all the different languages in the world, everybody would understand it. But I think of it in terms of recurring time, how often we need to hear the same piece of wisdom, the same teaching. Oh boy. In different times, in different voices, with different people, with different accents, and we never know which one will finally seep in, so that this was necessary to occur constantly ways. And here's the last paragraph of this teaching. So, the second year since they had left Egypt refers to the same thing. For the Blessed Holy One took us out of Egypt, meaning the terrible shells, the 49 gates of impurity. That is, again, Kabbalistic language, but also it dates back earlier than that to this, this idea that the seven sevens, 49, meaning it's a special number in Hebrew, uh, mean many things but they are um, rungs or gates, sha'arim. Uh, uh, impurity means here uh, a coating, um, a covering, all the ways that, we, um, uh, that, that, that that light 
in the person we're meeting or in the circumstances we're in or in the inner accountability, the sense of joy, all the qualities he's wanting us to uh, nurture in this teaching, the humility, the joy, the sense of possibility of renewal, they get covered up by the klipot of living, right? The, 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 the mud, the crap, the, we get coated with it. We want to be, we become unclean, you know, and we want to somehow, Yom Kippur is the day when we try to shed all of that and uh, live, in, live in the light. And uh, the 49 is important here because the 50th day, after counting 49 days of the Omer, is Shavuos, when we stand at Mount Sinai together. So the 49 gates of impurity are things that we need to examine and move through. They're gates so that we can leave Mitzrayim and stand, leave this, that sense of, of um, encumberedness and stand at Mount Sinai ready with renewed awareness to receive. So the number 49 and the counting of the Omer and the fact that Shavuot's the 50th day is all sort of implied in this teaching. The exodus from Egypt happens again whenever a person breaks the shells on the way toward holiness. Our reality is referred to as year, the second year, meaning in Sefer Yetzirah, which is this most early Kabbalistic text, sort of like the, the, the um, what do we call it, the um, foundational text of Kabbalah, uh, says that reality is comprised of um, Shana, Olam, Nefesh, and Shana, meaning time, space, Shana is time, uh, sorry, Olam is space, Shana is time, and Nefesh is self. So, uh, in, every, in other words, in every dimension of experience, uh, and so that's a whole other talk. That, we won't go there right now, but um, that's what he's referring to. The second year comes to teach that there is a second exodus from Egypt that happens in our own times. Whenever a person does teshuva, whenever a person does this activity of, of pulling off the layers and standing in the light and saying, I can do it again, it's a new day, it's a new year, I don't have to kick myself forever, I don't have to feel that I'm too lowly for this, I don't have to, it's like we have this opportunity to rise to our true nature as children of the king in traditional language at all times and with constant renewal. And so that, so Noam Elimelch is speaking to us about that, encouraging us as we get ready for, as we get ready for Shavuot. <coughs> Let's look at a teaching, we have time about verse 2. That was just verse 1. <laughs> Why don't you turn to the uh, third teaching that says, Ginzei Yosef. Ginzei Yosef. All, I photocopied all of these because I couldn't choose before the class. Uh, but I knew I wouldn't have time to do them all. I looked up who this Ginzei Yosef is. Um, because um, 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 I didn't know. 
1792. His name was Yosef Bloch. Little is known about his life other than that he served as a rabbi and preacher in the communities of Olesk and Satino and was a student of the Magid, meaning a Hasidic student of the, the leader of Hasidism, as well as a halachic scholar. His work received a large number of uh, approbations, um, endorsements, from both Hasidic and non-Hasidic leaders. Okay. So, his what words... Is, what does Ginza mean? Uh, uh, ganuz. It means the treasures. So here's the second verse. Yodhei spoke to Moses in the wilderness of, Israel, of Sinai, saying, and the second verse says, Se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Lift up the head. Se'u et rosh. As in so many times in Torah it says, Se'u e'nayim, lift up your eyes. Here it's lift up the heads. And the rabbis, again, don't miss this. What an unusual way to talk about Counting people. There are plenty of simpler words in Hebrew to tell them to count. At least four. Right? So lift up the heads of the community of the children of Israel. According to their families, according to Beit Avotam, their father's households, meaning their clans. Counting the names of all the men. Legulgelotam. Gulgalet. Can you recognize that word? Gilgul. Gilgul is um, um, a circle. They're skulls. They're, they're heads. It literally means they're round heads. Gulgulet is a, um, a skull also. Did Google? That's where it came from. Right, right. Everything's in the Bible. Uh, you can yeah. find it all here. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rashi says, because God loved them, God repeatedly counts them. Um, okay, so that's the teaching. There's this teaching. Why do we have this at Mount Sinai before they head off on their march? Because God is like the loving parent, <coughs> camp counselor, you know, it's like, okay, I want to make sure everybody's here. Where's Jimmy? You know, and this is a beautiful teaching. That the, you know, from the faceless mass, who for Pharaoh had no identities that were worth noting. This is the opposite. This is a community where... Do not oppress the stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. This is, this is the holy community that's trying to be established here. And so you count them all and you say, where's Sally? Oh, we have to wait. It's kind of like when Miriam is, has, is forced to leave the camp for seven days after <coughs> slandering Moses and says, and the children of Israel waited until Miriam re-entered the camp before they decamped again. When it says, what's wrong with Amalek? Amalek is evil because they caught the stragglers and the weak and weary from behind. Right? That's their sin. That's their great, that's their great evil. Again, you know, I don't want to, I'm idealizing, but I'm trying to go for the principle that I really see in Torah. 
which is that you don't leave anybody out in the community. Um, and so there's this beautiful teaching that God is counting each and every one. It's also as God counts, we get an imprint of that. And that's how we survived it. All the non-counting, all the, I mean, look at, you know, the Holocaust, mm. just the last... Well, the Holocaust is the most horrible example of, 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 of Pharaoh's Egypt yes. because every human being was reduced to a number. Right there. But, the imp- but what God's imprint is what allows us to move through that, and here we are, still. Mm-hmm. Carol? Um, in, the, in the big Cecil B. DeMille that I'm envisioning here. Louder, Carol. In the big Cecil B. DeMille scene that I'm envisioning here, the, um, with everyone who never looks up because there's nothing to look up to. And, and God says, look up. And, and, and one at a time as each person Oh, get the visual here. Picture everyone gathered and each one gets called and they look up until everyone's eyes are up looking. That's fantastic. Will you direct it, Carol? Absolutely. They're looking up towards their foundation, towards the root. That's right. It's not just looking up to the ethereal. No, it's, it's really the groundedness. Right. That's the language of that's the language of Jewish mysticism. It says, but the real counting of Israel points upward toward their root above. Again, I've talked about paradox today, and one of the images that Jewish mysticism loves is the paradoxical image of the tree of life as having its roots in heaven. And it's, and it's being an upside-down tree, and it's fruits below. Um, the 600,000 Israelite souls, because that's the count, 603,000. And again, it's a crazy count. How'd they come up with that number? Um, and of course, again, in, it's the plain, in, in the uh, plain meaning of the text, it's not including anyone who's not a soldier. But again, as you can see, Jewish teaching, basically, as is the want, of Jewish teaching leaves that specificity behind and tries to go for the the greater principle. Yes? Could you say something about that specificity? I, mean, I appreciate the universal principle, but how about the militarism that's in here as well? You, you yes, the militarism's in here as well. Um, and the children of Israel have been enslaved. <clears throat> they live in a place and time of constant combat where tribes and peoples are constantly warring. There was no such thing as that, as not that. And so from a powerless band of slaves, they're being transformed into a people who can be self-sufficient and who can fight their own battles. And uh, that was the nature of the world in, you know, 1,200 BCE. Uh, And it's still the nature of the world to a certain degree today, though we've been able to elevate the idea of universal much higher. Um, so the, you know, if one is looking at the Torah as a, to, for a, a pacifist um, um, ideology, it just ain't there. It's just not there. 
So the, 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 the freedom we take, and, uh, and we take it, and part of why, how I teach this class is to show how teachers in previous centuries have also taken the liberty with the text. Jews don't view this in, even Jews who are today we'd call fundamentalists aren't literalists because they're already inheriting this rabbinic tradition when it comes to the text. Uh, so it's problematic because it requires us to do a lot of translating across millennia. But um, I hope that responds to your question. Yeah. So it says here, and thank you for asking, uh, the 600,000 Israelite souls which I'm saying become a number that's very significant in rabbinic tradition and in mystical tradition because it becomes the number of people who stood at Sinai. And so uh, it just becomes colloquial, you know, that you talk about the 600,000 who are at Sinai means everybody, all of us, um, have their source in the six sfirot, the six directions. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to his next point. That is why the text says, lift up the head and not simply count. Listen, this act of Moses' counting awakened the light of that source, shining brightly upon Israel. It raised them up to the highest rungs of awe and love, directing their hearts to the ever-present God. Lift is to be taken as in Exodus 14, when it says Israel lifted up their eyes. 14.10, let's see what happens in Exodus 14.10. Um, in Exodus 14.10, as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites lifted up their eyes and caught sight of the, of the Egyptians advancing upon them. And greatly frightened, they cried out to God. So it's this idea of looking up, not just to the Egyptians, but past the Egyptian armies, up to God. That's how he's interpreting it. How about the phrase, Se'u Sha'arim Roshechem? Se'u Sha'arim Roshechem. Where's that from? Uh, I think it's, it's Psalms. Psalms. Yeah. Uh, lift up your head, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Oh, ye gates, lift up your heads. Oh, ye gates. I have to find the citation so we can see, see more of it. Yeah. Um, so this is lift up the head, Se'u et Rosh. Raise Israel to its highest root, according to their father's household, meaning the source of their souls. Bemispar, which means number, he's using it as sapir, sapphire, or shining. Um, the names for a, the names, the shemot, for a person's name represents the life force within. Thus, the light of their upper source comes to shine within them, each according to their name or the essential flow of life. And uh, Art Green says, each of us has a unique life. This is the contemporary saying, the statement about this teaching. Each of us has a unique light shining in upon us from the source of all life. Moses, 
or the inner sage, is called upon to lift us upward toward that source. Here the act of counting, sometimes superstitiously suspect as bringing curse, is itself raised up to the highest blessing. Anybody grow up with that? Where, where the, grand, the grandmother wouldn't count? Right. Not, not one, not two, not three. Yeah. It was a superstition that if, it's, an old, it's a superstition that if you name somebody, you count, then the, the ayin hara, the evil eye is going to spot them. And so you want to not, so that's a whole other, so that's a whole other folk tradition. Um, but here the counting is about helping each person by counting them, by noting them, by recognizing them, by having them lift up their heads so you can see their face. Uh, to uh, recognize the highest blessing. Hmm. I remember misspore to count, misappear to tell. That's right. So it's to me, it made me feel like that each person's story is so unique and it's with this uniqueness of their being, of their story, that they're able to reach this height of enlightenment. It's so beautiful. Now, we've talked about this in the past, and it's worth repeating. Lispor, in Hebrew, means to count. Achad, shnaim, shalosh. One, two, three. To count. Lisaper is to tell, which I would say in English would be to recount, or to give an account. Right? And so the word for in English and Hebrew for, and then there's the word when we say in English that that person counts, right? right? It means that... And that person's accountable. And accountable. <laughs> and all of that is wrapped up both in the Hebrew and the English. I think it's quite beautiful. <clears throat> so, lispor, davka, is not to reduce people to numbers, no. but to elevate them to their uniqueness. <laughs> but at the same time, not so special, right? Part of the whole, part one of many. Each story is so important because it's through the specific story, through that burning bush, that the universal is revealed. That's the paradox of being a holy community, right? The paradox of being a holy community, which is the goal of Torah for the children of Israel, would be that it's only through each person counting and being accountable, and knowing their story, uh, that our, our, our holy community is going to be intact and whole. If anybody is left out dragging, discounted, um, then there's no holiness. And at the same time, ironically, or paradoxically, if anybody doesn't count themselves as one of the community, then, uh, and that requires that humility, then we're also, our holiness is fractured. So it's this amazing um, balancing act, consciousness act, of concerning oneself, if, if I'm for myself, not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not, now when? Bob? But the story here is that the group, or the Torah, or the community, or the people, are doing the counting. So the story is not I count, but you have counted me. 
Beautiful. It's a group story. It's a group story. That is the Jewish, that is the Jewish account of our origins. We were there together, and we're traveling together. Gail, and then also, Stu. There's also something I noticed this time, that there's a detailed description of what particularly the Levites, each group, has to do. So there's the implication of each one of us every morning getting up and having our own tasks that are part of our life, you know, in terms of the spirit, in terms of taking, because it all has to be taking care of the sanctuary. So in terms of the spiritual path, what is my task? But it only occurred to me this week that part of the being so specific is to emphasize this, that it's not a general accountability, it's this very specific, <coughs> also my role in, in my mm -hmm. life. What do I, what, yeah. Right, if you read chapters three and four yeah. of this parsha, they're all about the very specific duties of each of the Levite clans right. in making the portable sanctuary able to travel with the people. Yeah. So yes, each of us has a specific task that is ours alone right. for carrying this community forward. And we all matter. And we all matter. Could Nicely I, put. Can I add a little twist to this that we all matter? I mean, I'm just throwing it on the table. I'm not, I'm sure, not Jay. Um, they're, they're, um, we are, we, we're all unique for sure. And, and it's my take, we all have different degrees of an inner core of ethics. We all have, um, uh, some of us don't, don't need the Torah to say, thou shalt not kill. We sort of have an internal voice in us that tells us not to. And, and I can understand that inner core of ethics that we all have to a certain degree that we want to be part of this community. However, there's a segment of the population, let's take for instance sociopaths, who uh, have no empathy, who have no compassion, who um, uh, uh, wind up in prison many of the time, who wind up as CEOs of corporations. And, and, and dictators. Uh, and or senators. Yeah. And senators and politicians. Right. Okay, true sociopaths. That oh, yeah, be, yeah, yeah. I follow with, them with great interest. They could be diagnosed with MRIs that have nothing to do with, do we want these people part of the holy community? That's why they have to leave the community. No, 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 no. I would, no this is the, the idealized community. Um, this, one of the things people hate about Torah is the number of laws there are in it. Right? This is a holy community that's run by a sense of what is just. And if, somebody is running, if, somebody, if someone is running rampant over other people's um, uh, well-being, their property, their personal... There are plenty of laws in this community to prevent those people. In the Torah, it's death penalties, right? Later, Judaism mitigates those penalties and says, no, 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 we don't... Later, Judaism eliminates the death penalty, but there's nothing in Judaism that says you don't take someone who's dangerous for society and sequester them. Okay, that, that, that clarifies it, because that, there's a, in context of... I, I mentioned this in context of what you said, if somebody's outside the community... The community's not holy, holy, we have to bring them in. So I was referring... Be careful who we filter into this community. I was, well, again, this is an idealized rendering of a self-contained group wandering through the wilderness. Trying, so this is an idealized rendering. Our, our contemporary communities are, are, are much more porous and 
lack coherence. And so it's, it, it's much more complicated than what we say. And sociopaths are the exception. You know, that means, for me, that means that any idealized community is going to be aware that for whatever reason, some small percentage of human beings uh, can't play in the sandbox with you. You know, it's like, so I don't see it as a contradiction. I see it as, a, as part of the complicated, com complexity of it all. Uh, we're almost out of time. There still has to be, there's still part of the community. I mean, there are varying degrees, you know, sociopath is maybe an extreme, but there are different degrees yeah, of annoying exactly. people. Annoying, annoying, yes, annoying people. What you do with annoying people. Um, the, uh, the problem is, the problem is it's after two o'clock. So, uh, Stu, you wanted to say something, and then I will, I'll try to say something that just sums it all up perfectly. <laughs> Talk loud, Stu. It's another one of the count. When you want to insult somebody, you say, you don't count. And we right. didn't get that. Right. And in slavery, that we know of American slavery, not only don't you count, but your children don't count. They are not your property. And you are then, they are sold into slavery away from mothers mm -hmm. and fathers. Right, and you're three-fifths of a human being yeah. and are property. Right. Carol, did you want to add something? You look like... Well, just that. These, these men that I'm talking about could have been seen as sociopaths. And uh, they should have been, they would be the first people to tell you they should have been put away. But something else, for some people, it's a very small part of the prison population that I work with, but sometimes some people move through it. And staying open to that is also important. That is the complexity. Yes is do you label someone and give up on them permanently? What are the criteria? Right. Uh, uh, because there are these folks who are li in li uh, life sentences who have become <coughs> righteous human beings as a result of awakening to their, their past, it's like, boy, and Gail? Yeah, I wasn't gonna say this, but I was sitting here thinking about it. Every time it comes up, I do. In the um, kind of training I have as a psychologist, which is training for personality disorders. There are a group of us, not me, but a group of us, who have been working with people who have been committed to forensic hospitals as psychopaths in the UK and in Holland. And there is amazing success in having these people, in fact, develop empathy. And no kidding. Yes. I didn't know that was possible. And well, this is, this is a very powerful approach. And, um, and a number of them by now have been released and have been followed for quite a while. And the change in the way they are living their life is fantastic. Okay. Can you share with us next time what the source of this is so I could look it up? Um, I want to read sure. about it. I would like to see it as well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's an area that I had assumed was hopeless. That's really inter heard, interesting, huh? Uh, let's hear it for human ingenuity <laughs> and for not giving up. Uh, yes? I'm looking at a person. Do I recognize them? 
you know, and in order to live, you go by and you don't recognize it. That's right. You shut it off. That's right. That's, you, that's right. Those are the husks. How do they count? Those, those are the, the shells or the husks. That we, ha- right. that we put over the light so that we can just live in this broken world, right? And so the spiritual task is to figure out how to live with, take, with as few of those as possible, uh, g- um, protecting us from seeing the light and each, each individual. And that's where, again, a holy community comes in because nobody can do it alone. Right, and so if we can find people who share that orientation, that can strengthen us to go out in the world. Even if I see the guy and I don't do anything, at least acknowledge consciously there's a human being, uh, you know, and not not write them off. Uh, be, you know, so nobody said this was going to be easy. You want to say one more thing? Yeah. When I ran this program for homeless, mentally ill people in New York City for 11 years, what people would say who had now come in off the streets was that the worst part of their experience was having people clearly no longer see them as human. Wow. And that was when Gail was practicing in the city, she ran a program for homeless uh, uh, individuals. That's wow. That was the hard. That's the action of the spiritual. Wow. Learning. One more word, Pauline? Just quickly, I just want to remind, I guess it was two parshas back, three maybe, I lost count, um, that there is a time when leaving the community is important for our spi- on a spiritual level, for our spiritual integrity and the integrity of the community. And the Torah allows for this that when we're seeping so much ooze that rubs off badly on each other, then it is for our integrity and the community's integrity, the Torah allows us a space to move back so we can have space. Wonderful. So, uh, that was two verses. We'll do two. <laughs> we'll, but that's really fun sometimes. And I mean, last, last week, Last week we were we really we ranged all over the Torah looking for where the number seven, uh, how the number seven was used. That's one approach. This is a whole other approach. Uh, it's quite beautiful. Um, I want to remind you all that Shavuot. Oh, oh, here if you have two more minutes. So the festival starts Saturday evening. We're having dinner, a potluck dinner at six thirty, and then teachings as is customary from Rabbi Orr and myself um, uh, in the evening till about 11. So from 6.30 Saturday night. And that's, it's potluck. In the, at the same time, I'm leading a Lev Shalem Institute workshop for Shavuot all weekend long that starts tomorrow at uh, 5 o'clock and goes until Sunday at noon. Uh, the workshop and the Saturday night program that's, that's together. So the workshop participants and anyone else who wants it will all be together Saturday night and the workshop participants will be working with me the rest of the weekend. The other thing that's happening this weekend a la Shavuot is that as is customary we're having a sunrise morning service on Sunday morning at 5.30 in the morning. 
if you happen to be the kind of person who gets up then. Um, or, or before. Or before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or doesn't sleep anymore. Um, uh, the beauty of doing it at 5.30 is that it's sunrise. sunrise. It's sunrise. Yeah. And we read the Ten Commandments, sort of. Uh, so we can hear the voice. And we listen. It's a good time to listen to the voice. Uh, so that's this weekend. Right, it's not going to be a service, I believe. It's just going to be a Yizker service okay. on, on Monday at 10. Finally, on June... Uh, the annual meeting is tonight at 6. The synagogue's annual business meeting, tonight at 6. This flyer, we changed the format of our next weekend workshop. June was going to be a workshop from June 5th to 7th, as our other workshops have been, but we decided to make it a free and open Shabbaton, so people could come to any or all of it. It's called user-friendly Judaism. I should have put everything you ever want to know about Judaism, but I was afraid to ask. This is truly a beginner's or beginner's mind. You can come to any parts of it. You can come to all of it. You can go online and sign up for the catered meals if you'd like. That costs money. And you can come to one or... So I'd love for you... This is an opportunity to just come and there's... Without any, try have no no barrier of uh, of uh, sense of what you know or don't know. So um, take a flyer and uh, invite other people. We really want to make this a very lovely and open day. Okay. No no class next Thursday. I'm going to be teaching out of town, and uh, but we do have class in two weeks from today. Those are yours if you like them. Thanks, that was really interesting, wasn't it? You're so welcome, Jay.